you have a Bible, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to loan you one. You just have to raise your hand real high and the guys will come down the aisle. They're happy to let you borrow a Bible so you can follow with us. I think most of you know we're making our way just systematically through the Scriptures, uh, book by book and chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And so we're here in chapter 6 of Hebrews. And we'll be looking at verses 4 through 8 this morning. I entitled our message, Spiritual Danger Zone. And uh, I'll explain why here in a second. But uh, are you guys good? Everyone's there? Hebrews 6? I'm going to ask you to stand, if you don't mind, in honor of God and His Word. I'll read these verses aloud and you can follow in your Bibles. The writer Hebrews says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and become partakers of the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it's cultivated receives blessings from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. All right, we're going to pause there. Uh, I told Pastor Kevin, who wrote uh, earlier this morning on a text, I said, please pray for me. It is a doozy of a passage, but uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the morning. Lord, we thank you for our time as we open your word. And Lord, we know that your scriptures speak life, that the word of God is alive and it is active. Lord, and you use it to, to shape our hearts and our lives. You use it, Lord, as as a light to show us where to go and what to do and even what not to do. And so for that, Father, we just give you praise and glory. Lord, we do thank you even through the scriptures. It's revealed how Jesus came and he lived for us. He died for us. And as we sang earlier, that our sin has been atoned for, that it's been nailed to the cross. Jesus, you made a spectacle of it by giving your life and taking judgment that we deserved upon yourself. Lord, help us to stand firm in that grace, stand firm in our salvation, assured of what you have done for us. Lord, speak now to our hearts. Help us to understand what your Spirit wants to say and how it applies to our lives today. We ask and pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Would you take a moment and say hello to someone? You can wave at them or elbow bump them, and, and then you can have a seat. Dan, is it your last Sunday? Next week. Okay. You know, there are some things in life uh, that come with a difficulty rating. You encounter um, ski slopes come with a difficulty rating. White water rapids have uh, a difficulty rating. 
Some of you uh, like hiking. I know the Thompsons took me on my first hike <laughs> some time ago. Uh, certain trails have difficulty ratings. You know, in America, the, the most difficult ski slope is rated by what's called a double black diamond. It's the, the most difficult slope. And so I, I did some, a Google research and tried to find out what was the most difficult. And of course, it's, it's subjective, but one of them is this place called the, the Swiss Wall. Uh, it's in Switzerland, and apparently the, the ski slope is ridiculous. The picture doesn't do it justice, uh, but the, the incline is um, like death. I think it just goes straight down. <laughs> also, apparently in the rafting world, uh, there are six classes, and the sixth class is, they even, even though there's a sixth class, it's, it's basically unraftable. You can't even go on it. It's so dangerous. And so class five is the the most highest class of rafting, and uh, there's a place uh, called the Futa Lufa River. I'm probably not pronouncing that right. It's in Chile, and it's considered the world's hardest, and it's nicknamed the Terminator. Right? And so it looks beautiful, though, right? But I was thinking about, like, I, I get a little nervous on the Disneyland, uh, you know, rapid ride. You know, woo, here we go! But, uh, and so, you know, there's diff different things that have difficulty ratings. You know, hobbies can have cooking certain dishes or scuba or, or skating tricks my son's trying to pull off or uh, working on the car, fixing appliances. You know, they have, they have different difficulty ratings. Some things are considered easy or medium or, or maybe, you know, incredibly hard. Uh, there's some puzzles or games that come with difficulty ratings. Uh, apparently, this is the world's most difficult puzzle. 33,600 pieces this thing has. Uh, I'm not a puzzle person. I doesn't even, I'm not even tempted by that. I'm like, oh, yeah. So if the Bible had a difficulty rating on certain passages, today we would be in a class five. Uh, we would be in a double black diamond, you know, extreme difficulty. And, and if you're visiting today, uh, welcome to the Roaring Rapids. Uh, it reminded me, uh, when I first learned to ski in the sixth grade in Colorado, I, my dad and we were, our family was stationed at the Air Force Academy, and friends of mine took me to a place called Arapahoe Basin uh, in, in Northern California, and, and, and I was going to learn to ski, and they took me to the Black Diamond Slope and said, here you go, go for it, and uh, you know, thankfully I didn't break my legs, but uh, this is the type of, of passage we've come to today. And I, and I want to preface it by saying this is a section where very wise and brilliant Bible scholars, Bible teachers, pastors have come to the same passage, and guess what? They've disagreed <clears throat> Excuse me on the interpretation. And, and pastors and Bible teachers who are uh, much more spiritual and much more smarter than me in today's day and yesteryear, and they've tried their best to navigate these scriptural waters. And so this is what we are going to attempt to do. And, I, and in doing so, I want to give you some of the main views, some of the main interpretations of this particular section so that you can be familiar with them. And they all have some merit. And you might know of another pastor that might teach it a little differently. Listen, I don't have any disrespect or, uh, for others who have a different view. In fact, I'd even say that for my own uh, view of this, it has changed from where I first read it some years ago and what I thought and held on to to where I am today. 
And so I'll preface it by saying that I'm going to share these views and I'll give you the one that I hold to today. Uh, it may not be the same the next 20 years, but we'll, we'll see. But let me also make this statement. Just because there are differences in interpretation of this one passage does not mean that we cannot trust the integrity of the whole letter. It does not mean that we cannot trust the integrity of all of Scripture. This is just one, and there are a a few other cases, where we wish the the Holy Spirit had inspired the writer to, to define some of the terms they were using, or to expand or amplify a little bit more so that we could know for sure. But such is the case for this, that that didn't happen, and hence there are some different views as to what this means. And let me add this too. I think one of the challenges we can come to, and this section reminds us the importance to do our best to read, to understand the words, the text, and the context, which the fancy term is hermeneutics and exegesis, to allow this text to say what it, what it is saying in the context to help define that, and that we resist bringing some of our pre-existing theology and, and trying to make it fit into our theology. And so we want to do our best to rightly divide the word of truth that's before us. And so now on to our level five whitewater passage, verse four. The writer says, it is impossible for those who are once enlightened, have tasted the heavenly gift, have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, have tasted the good word of God and the powers to come, that if they fall away. We'll pause there for a second. First of all, let's remember context. The writer is writing a letter to encourage the Jewish believers. We find out from the entirety of this letter that they were dealing with some intense pressures in their life. There was a strong temptation that they were fighting to basically leave Christianity and go back to their old life of of following the Old Testament rules and regulations. And the writer uh, is exhorting them, encouraging and exhorting. And one encouragement it is to, to remind them, listen, you need to keep your eyes on Jesus. That you might be tempted to follow other things and and rules and regulations, uh, legalism, for for us, even our old life. Remember, his whole argument is that Jesus is greater. Jesus is better. There is nothing better than Jesus, period. But along with that, there are some warnings. Warnings for them not to drift back. Warnings for them not to become dull of hearing. Warnings for them not to doubt what they have come to receive and believe is the truth. And again, sometimes that can happen in our life. We read the word. God says these things and then we experience something. We begin to question, does God really love me? Is God really watching out for me? And sometimes we, we have challenges. We try to reconcile what we know to believe or we we know to be true, we believe to be true, and yet we experience something that seems to be contrary to that. 
And so he's writing to this group. He wants to expand more about the idea of how Jesus is our high priest. And remember, he has to pause for a second and he addresses the reader and says, I have more to say, but you guys have become a little dull of hearing. That you've been just drinking milk and we, I want to move on to meat. I want to move on from the ABCs into other things. And so that's been the context, and now he's developing this thought, the, these areas where he's worried about them. But let's make some observations. First of all, uh, the first op- observation, notice that the writer presents to us a very serious scenario. And it seems to be contingent upon this conditional action, that if a certain group falls away after having this type of experience, He says it will be impossible for them to be renewed to repentance. And he wants to highlight the seriousness of this possibility by emphasizing or using this word that it's impossible. And in the passage for us to understand maybe a level four difficulty, but what's interesting to me, the irony of it is that He's just talked to them about not being milk drinkers. Now he's saying, hey, I want to talk to you now. And he moves us into this really difficult thing. And so notice it's a warning. And number two, notice with me there is a pronoun change. Now prior to this, the writer's been using the terms we and us and you. Notice verse 11 of of whom we have much to say. It's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. In chapter 6, verse 1, he says, let's, let's leave the elementary discussions of, of, or excuse me, leave the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ. Let us go on to perfection. And so the pronouns have been we and us and you. But now when we get to 4 and 5 and 6, the pronoun changes to, to, you, to those and they and themselves. And so it's just an observation. Possible conclusion is that the writer seems to be talking about another group. Because then in verse 9, he comes back to the same pronouns. He writes, but beloved, we are confident concerning you. There's a, a contrast, there's a change. Sometimes we use the same pronoun in the English language to talk about a collective, undefined group. And we say these phrases all the time. Well, you know, they say that if you eat Goya, you'll live forever. The question is, well, who says that? Yeah, that's our question. That's our question when we come to this text. Who, who are they? Who is the writer talking about? They and those and themselves. That's what we we want to try to answer. That's the first thing that we want to unlock so that we can understand what the passage is saying. Now, this is also where we find some of the same trouble that other Bible students and teachers have encountered. Because as I mentioned earlier, the irony of the passage, the writer charges the reader that having learned the ABCs of faith, let's move on, and then he immediately moves on to a doctorate-level quantum physics and, and mechanics. You know. 
So who are they? Well, he gives us some clues to describe they. Those. Who are those? Well, those are five things he, know, he lists for us. They've been, they're once enlightened. They have tasted the heavenly gift. They've become partakers of the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the good word of God. And along with that, the idea they've experienced or they've tasted the powers of the age to come. And so this is the million-dollar question. Who is the writer talking about? Are those descriptors, is that a, a description of believers? Is this a description of people who are saved? Or is this a description of those who are almost saved? They, they have a, a salvation-like experience. And so this is our first hurdle in understanding this passage. Now, part of what fuels the debate about this particular group is by what those terms, those five descriptors actually mean. And I, and I can tell you this without getting into a lot of detail, there are some solid arguments on both sides of whether they are believers or whether they are non-believers. There's some solid arguments to say, though, these are terms that describe salvation. That, that is, those are terms that describe someone when they come to faith, of a saving faith in Jesus Christ. And yet there's others who would say, no, those are terms that describe something close to salvation, but it's not really salvation. And so I'm going to give you both. The first is once enlightened. The term in itself can just simply mean that you're in darkness, but now you've seen the light. You've been exposed to the light. A person's understanding of who God is and who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. At one time in our life, it was void. We didn't really understand, but the light of God's truth came. And it shone into your heart. It shone into your mind. You're exposed to this truth of God's love and His forgiveness and, and Christ who came. And there are those who say this describes salvation. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And I have come as the light into the world. And everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. John 12, 46. Others will say, no, this just means you've been exposed to the truth. You've seen the light, but you haven't come into the light. Those who have tasted the heavenly gift. Now there are those who say, well, taste it just means to merely sample. It, it means to have a, like a taste test of the gospel. And that heavenly gift is the gospel. It's a reference to Christ himself, Jesus Speaking to the woman at the well in this dialogue, he says, well, if you, have known the, if you would know the gift of God and he who speaks to you. Paul writes to the Corinthians and says, thank God for his indescribable gift, speaking of Christ. And so there are those who say, that's talking about salvation. To receive the gift of God. Ephesians 2. For our salvation, it's not by our works, but it's a gift that God gives us. 
Again, there are those who say this isn't describing, on the other side, there are those who say this isn't describing salvation. But merely, it's like a taste test. When you go to Blue Seal and there's a new flavor, you're like, can I have a sample of that? Or back in the day before COVID, when you can go to different grocery stores and just, remember Costco days? Just walk around and you can have a whole meal. Just keep on walking into the store and have to buy anything, right? And so they'll say, no, listen, taste doesn't mean to fully experience. It's a little difficult. There are some difficulties with all of these views. One difficulty with that particular interpretation is back in chapter 2, verse 9, it's talking about Christ who, and he says, the writer says, who tasted death. We wouldn't say, oh, Jesus just sampled it. (laughs) But he experienced the fullness of that. He, He died on a cross for your sins and mine. And so there's a debate, what does that mean then, to taste the heavenly gift? To be partakers of the Holy Spirit? That word partake in the original Greek, it means to share. Again, on one side of the argument, there are those who say outside of this particular descriptor, that term is not used to describe people who've come to faith. Those who've come to faith, the relationship is we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians, Romans 8. The Spirit of God dwells inside of us. Yet at the same time, that term's not used to describe any other experience with the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to share then in the Holy Spirit? Again, there are some who say, oh, that means salvation. You're sharing the experiences of the Holy Spirit. Others would say, no, it doesn't. It means that you get to witness and watch what the Holy Spirit is doing that you can still be convicted because that's part of the, the, the role of the Spirit in the world, to convict the world of God's righteousness in, in, in the judgment to come, sin and judgment and righteousness to come, or judgment to come, excuse me. Tasted the good word of God. Again, it's that same word that's used in the Greek, that word or translated as tasted for us. And it describes someone who's experienced the goodness that comes from the Word of God. Now, arguably, this can happen for either the believer and the non-believer, for the Christian and the non-Christian. But the principles of God's Word are true regardless of a person believes if they're true or not. God's Word is universal. There's a universal law that just works to treat others like we want to be treated that it's better to give than to receive. Be kind. Don't steal. Don't jump to conclusions. Many have tasted the good words of Scripture and have benefited from them, both the believer and the non-believer. And so what does that mean then, to have tasted the Word of God? And then the fifth one is, and he adds along with that, and the powers of the age to come. And so, most likely, this refers to God's supernatural powers. The working of miracles and wonders and healings. Back in chapter 2, he's talking about how the Word came and it was um, 
2.4, and God bearing witness both by signs and wonders and various miracles and the gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His will. You know, I believe that the Bible, well, I believe the Bible says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. That God allowed the supernatural to take place. Signs and wonders. To bring validation to His work and His message and often His messengers. And I believe that God's still in the miracle business. That God still does exceedingly above and beyond all that you and I could ever ask or think. And so there's this group that got to experience this wonderful aspect of God. And so the first question to answer is then, who are these people? Who are these people who have experienced these things? Is it talking about true believers in Christ? Or is it talking about people who have experienced amazing things? Godly things, and yet somehow they're not really saved. So that's, that's a difficult thing to answer. The second question and the third question we have to answer comes from the next section. And I'll come back, don't worry, I'll come back and we'll go through these things. That if they fall away and renew them again to repentance, so it's impossible for those who have this experience, if they fall away, for them to be renewed again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put Him to an open shame. The writer then uses this analogy about the ground. For the earth that drinks in the rain, which we can just look outside, and that's been Okinawa the last three weeks. And the farmers love it. What happens? Well, it bears... Plants and crops, and the writer says herbs, useful. Cilantro and what other herbs? I don't know. That's the only one I know. <laughs> Used for, for salsa by those who are cultivated. Right? Receiving blessings from the Lord. But then he goes on, but, but if it bears thorns and briars, well, it's rejected. And notice this phrase, it's near to being cursed whose end is to be burned. And so now we have these other questions. We'll come back and answer the first question. But the second question is, what does the writer mean by fall away? What does that actually mean? The people who have had this experience, if they fall away, well, okay, what does it mean then to fall away? What does it mean that they can't repent again? How are you going to define fall away and Repentance. Does fall away mean to fall from salvation? Or is it some type of other falling away from some other aspect of the Christian faith? And so we have to define what does fall away mean? And the third question we have to answer from verse 8 is what is the actual judgment that he's talking about? What does it mean that if it bears thorns and briars, what bears thorns and briars? And what does it mean to be then near being cursed and then being burned? And so based upon how a person answers those three questions is where you get the views. And there's a lot of them. I'm just going to share four main ones with you. 
So the first view is that this scenario the writer is writing is hypothetical. That he's presenting this hypothetical situation, something that cannot happen, but it's, a, it's used as a warning for the Hebrew believers, for them to move forward. Let's move on from ABCs and let's grow together. And in this thinking, the idea is that the writer is saying, well, it, the writer never intended that, the, that his readers were in actual danger of losing their salvation, of falling away. Just hypothetically, what would happen if they actually did? That if they, if they could and if they did, well, they couldn't get saved again. And so there's this view that it's hypothetical. Someone in parallel or like when, you know, when we were kids and we're taking too long at the, at the store, maybe you're, you're puttering in the candy aisle or you're in the toy section and, and your parents threaten you, listen, if you don't come right now, I'm going to leave you here. Yeah. Which for my mom was not an idle threat. She left me one time, just... <laughs> and so there are those who say this, this is a, a, a hypothetical. The writer is using this scenario to encourage the reader, don't lag behind. Don't stay stuck in the ABCs. You, you need to move forward in maturity. There's a, in my opinion, a big problem with this view, and that is why bring up a an impossible scenario is a hypothetical to motivate them. Especially when it has to deal with salvation. Why, why create any kind of uneasiness when it comes then to their salvation in Christ when he's trying to assure them and encourage them? But there are those who say this is a hypothetical. The second view is that this warning is dealing with genuine believers that that those five experiences are talking about people who are actually saved and then who actually fall away, but not from salvation. So they define the first question as, yep, those are believers, but what does it mean to fall away? What does it mean then to receive judgment? They say, oh, that's not talking about salvation, but it's to fall away from service. It's to fall away from, from growth and good works. It's those who just remain idle in their faith. They remain in spiritual infancy. And so for them, they define the falling away as not a rejection of the gospel, but rather a failure to really trust God for daily living. And that the judgment then that's described is not an eternal damnation, but rather a loss of reward. We talked a little bit of how even the believer is going to have a type of judgment day when we stand before the Lord. And it's not, we're not going to be judged for our sins. Christ took our judgment for our sins. I hope that you understand that. But in many ways, it's going to be like a, a, an award or a reward ceremony. And the Bible has this interesting uh, descriptor of how we'll be giving crowns. There's different types of crowns that the scriptures talk about. And and then how we can lay those crowns down before the feet of the Lord as an act of worship. And so there are those who say, this is not talking about salvation, but it's talking about service. And there's a part of me that's like, that. that's interesting because 
the writer goes on in verse 9 to talk about then service. And he says, and God won't forget your good works and the things that you've shown, the kindness that you've shown to the body. And so there seems to be some context, you know, support of that. And there's a parallel to the children of Israel who he'd been writing about earlier, how they failed to enter into the rest that God had for them and the blessings. The trouble, though, with this view is, how does a Christian who settles for less than God's best, and, and that can happen, but how do they crucify Jesus again by that? How, how do they put Jesus to an open shame by that idea? I mean, I agree with one part that we as Christians can be lazy. That's why the writer will say later on, don't be lazy. And we as Christians can be idle. We can, we, it's possible to bear little fruit in our lives. We can cheat ourselves from the fullness of what God wants to do on this side of eternity, on the other side of eternity. But is it impossible then for that person to repent from a backslidden state or from an immature state? I, I would say no. The context says, the writer says, let's not stay there. Let's, let's move on. And so while there's some credence to this, you're left with some problems. Because I fully believe that God is a God of second chances. And there are times where we can wander off. And there are times where we, if you will, can be like the prodigal. That's right, that's an amen right there. The third view is that these are genuine believers. Those five experiences describe genuine believers who have turned from following Christ and now they've condemned themselves to eternal judgment. And there's a time in my life where I believed this. Not that you could lose your salvation, but that you could leave your salvation. In this sense, not that you could you know, we, when we lose something, it's not intentional. I, I misplaced my keys. I lost my ring. I lost my misplaced my glasses. That, you don't intentionally do that. It's not a willful action. But if someone can willfully leave, willfully refuse, willfully reject. And this view says the writer is talking about true believers who have, if they decide, if they willfully walk away from following Christ, that they can't go back then and repent again. That the falling away is a conscious choice to reject the gospel after understanding it, after living it, after being blessed by it. It is for the Christian who says, I, I know what the Bible says. In fact, I, I believed it at one point, and I taught it at one point, but I don't believe it anymore, and I don't want it anymore. It is this uh, complete and final rejection of Jesus. And for those who take this view, the passage says that once you walk away, you cannot come back. You've sealed your fate to an eternal damnation. 
And so they'll point to the fact that that term fall away doesn't say fall down. Because as Christians, we can stumble from time to time. We can get off the wrong path at times. We can wander at times. Please understand, I I do not believe that the Scripture teaches that you could ever lose your salvation. There's a lot of passages. I'll just give you two real quick. Romans 8, 38 and 39. Paul says, inspired of God's Spirit, for I am certain, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels or rulers or things present or things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us. Jesus says in John 6, 39 and 40, He says that this is the will of the one who sent me, that I should not lose one person of every one that the Father has given to me, but I will raise them up in the last day. And this is the will of my Father for everyone who looks upon the Son, who believes upon Jesus Christ, will have eternal life, and I will raise them up in the last day. I I fully believe in the assurance of our salvation that Christ will be able to keep. And yes, there are times where we will stumble and there's times where maybe we'll wander off. But our shepherd is a good shepherd. And he comes and he seeks us and he restores us. But you know, what happens is we, we know people and we read about people. Those who have walked with the Lord. Those who have served in ministry. They've written books. They're, they, they were, they're well known within the Christian community. Podcasts and authors and pastors and uh, musicians. Who've written songs about Jesus. Who've written books about Jesus. And all of a sudden they're claiming now they're no longer Christians. That I used to believe this, but I no longer believe this. And, and we see that, and maybe there are people that you know, and it, and it can cause us to, like, what's going on? Are, are, they, are they saved or aren't they saved? Now, I, I want to say this in love. I, I don't know for sure. From our perspective, they seem to be, at one point, genuine Christians. They had the appearance, even the fruit of salvation. But they deviated from their course. Or the new term right is they deconstructed their faith. Now does that mean they can never come to repentance again? Are are they the ones who were believers but they have willfully rejected and say I don't want anything to do with Christ anymore? They haven't They haven't lost their salvation. They've left it. Seems that that would line up. But you're left with problems. The problem that you're left with is Romans 8, 38, and 39. And John 6, you're you're left with a whole bunch of problems. 
At one point, I leaned that way. The fourth view is that the writer is talking about those who have the experience of the blessing of God, but they're not really saved. That the descriptors here is not describing those who are saved, but those who have a salvation-like experience. And, and I'll say that's the view that I hold to today. But it has some trouble spots too. You're just going to have to pick one and deal with the trouble that you are left with. And here, let me explain why, first of all. It's the, first observ- or the second observation we made together. The fact that the writer uses a different pronoun to me indicates he's talking about a different group. He moves from you and us to they and those and them. Then he comes back to you and us concerning salvation. And so for me in context, I feel like, oh, he's talking about a different group. And the group that he's talking about in context, I believe it's not hypothetical. It's people who've had these experiences. In fact, I believe that they perhaps are even part of the community that he's writing to. Just like churches today, not everybody is saved. But often people experience the blessings of God. They experience the grace of God. The Bible talks about a common grace that God provides to all people. Rain is an example of it. But they can have this experience, and yet not really be saved. And I do believe that. A couple years ago when I was in high school, um, there's a group of us that, we, <laughs> it's not my notes, you ready, Yoko? We called ourselves the Five Rock Locals. And it was just a group of my buddies, and we would surf at Snobby, and we bodyboarded there. And and so there's a little bit of a kind of a surf culture back in that day, which still exists today, right? Flip-flops and T-shirts and board shorts. I mean, that's what we'd wear to school. But there's another group of kids that uh, would dress like us, but they never went out to the water with us. And we call them posers. They're wannabes. And they'd wear the puka shell and, you know, look the part. And so there'd be times where we're like, hey, we're going to go to Snobby. You want to come? They're like, oh, no, I'm busy. You got these things. And they never went to the water with us. Never once saw them with a board or a boogie board or anything like that. Oh, but they wore the same clothes and they dyed their hair with peroxide like the rest of us. <laughs> but they never paddled out. They never got in the water. It was just word. It was just a show. It wasn't genuine. And I do believe there's such a thing as pseudo-saved, that people look the part. They know the lingo. But inside, there's no true change. They like the experience. Church is nice. People are nice. They like the intellectual part of it. As though what we share is just mere lectures or like a TED Talk. But at some point, and usually at the point of crisis, their true spiritual state gets revealed. And they'll turn from their attendance, and they'll turn from their attention to Christ. They turn from the hearing of the Word of God, and they go back to the world. 
They go back to drugs. They go back to alcohol. They go back to a sinful lifestyle. Or in this case, the the Hebrew who goes back to legalism, who goes back to a, a, a sacrificial system and the priesthood. And in doing so, it's those then who basically say, the sacrifice of Christ is not adequate enough for me. And that's how then they put Christ to an open shame. That's how then they would, and by their actions, crucify the Lord again. Once they've been exposed to this truth, once they even said, I understand this truth. And it's those who then say, well, I've tried Christ, but it didn't work for me. I was part of the church at one time, but I saw all of the hypocrites, and I saw all that they're doing, and, and it doesn't work. Trust me, I know I've experienced it. I mean, that's a message we hear in our culture today. That those who once professed to believe in Christ, who even said that they were a Christian, and again, we look at them and they think, oh, they had fruit. But some crisis happened in their life, in their professed faith, and it shook them to the point where they walked away. They rejected the truth that they once professed in and they once promoted or believed. Can we rightly say whether that they are backslidden or they were never saved in the first place? I, I don't know. can only look at fruit and say what it appears to be in that moment. But I think this passage is describing those who are not genuinely saved but have a, an experience in church, have an experience with God by His grace, by His Spirit, who come to a place and say, I understand or even I believe. But then by their words and their lives, they show that they were never saved. You know, still there's others in a similar category who, who love the church because they love the social component. They, they love the relational aspect. They love people. Maybe they appreciate a good Bible study, but for them it's just an intellectual exercise. It's just a social exercise. And they never come to a a personal saving faith. It's just experiential. And they're enlightened by learning. They get to see what salvation means as they look at other people. They experience a, a gift, the gift of grace and the gift of kindness. They see how the Holy Spirit's working in people and churches and lives, and they wouldn't deny it. Many years ago, we were doing an outreach, or it was an Easter event, and we went to Araha Beach, and we did that for several uh, Sundays, or several Easter's in a, in a couple years in a row. But that particular one, um, it was like, much like how it's been lately, just a lot of rain and and we were praying, Lord, should we go forward or cancel it? And we had hired a, a professional sound company, and, and the, that Saturday it rained, and they called. They're like, hey, if you don't cancel, we're going to charge full, you know, the full price. And, and we really believed that God wanted us to move forward. And so we said, you know what, we're going to move forward by faith and believe the Lord will hold back the rain. And, and by the grace of the Lord, He did. And so we had this amazing outdoor service and 
the gospel was preached, and even the sound texts were there like, it's a miracle. It's a miracle, you know. And they were professing the goodness of God, and they watched the Lord work, and they saw people come forward, and, and they got to partake in the blessings of the Lord because we had free lunch, and we, you know, blessed them. They, they partook in all of the same things. And yet they didn't, not that I know of, they didn't get saved. I think they're moved. I think they're touched. I think they're impressed. We pray that they will be saved. But I believe the writer is talking about that type of person. And it is the parallel back in chapter 4, the children of Israel who experienced all of the blessings of the Lord corporately. They couldn't deny that God was at work. They saw the miracles. They ate the manna. And yet, remember, their, what happened is they did not enter in because they did not mix their experience with faith, the Bible says. They experienced it, they saw it, they could testify it, but they didn't have faith. And I believe the writer is talking about that group. Now, there is a problem with that view. Again, all of them have a little bit of a problem. The problem with that view is that if they're not really saved, then what do they fall away from? How can they be renewed to repentance if they've never repented in the first place? And so you're left with that. Again, no view is problem-free. But I do believe the analogy, the illustration in verses 7 and 8 helped them. It's a major key in interpreting the text. The ground that drinks in the rain, that's speaking of God's blessing, if it bears a crop, if there's fruit in a person's life, it demonstrates then the salvation. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it's worthless close to being cursed. It's burned up. And so again, it fits the story uh, uh, of the Israelites traveling through the wilderness. God poured out His blessings, poured out His grace, and their life should have brought forth fruit of obedience and faith. But instead, they were faithless, they were disobedient, and they lost out on the promise and the blessing. And so I submit to you as we study this that there are those then who are part of this community and the writer is writing to them. And there are some there in that community who are in danger of precisely this same situation. They participated in the corporate sense of God's blessing. They understood, they heard. They at a time had turned away from Judaism and they began to follow Jesus along with their neighbors and their friends. And the writer is saying, listen, to go back to the law would to be crucify Christ all over again. It would agree with those unbelieving Jews who would say Jesus is not the Savior. That's a spiritual danger zone. Again, despite the difficulties that are left fully unresolved, I do believe this view fits best the entire context and point of the passage. And so let me close with this then. What's the application? Three things. One, I think it's a a stern warning for to, to let us know that we can come far in matters of faith 
We can have very spiritual experiences and yet not be genuinely converted. And that's a dangerous place to be. To have an intellectual knowledge, but not a heart knowledge. To have an experiential, like this is fun, I, I, I enjoy this, but, but not confess Christ as your Lord and Savior. Second Peter 1.10 says, we're to be diligent to make our call and election sure. Number two, it's, it's dangerous to profess faith in Christ but have no evidence of fruit in your life. To say, oh, I am a believer. I believe that. The next question will be, okay, well, is there fruit in your life? What's growing from the soil of your faith? And the third is a warning for those who think they're believers. Again, it goes together and they're not. Understand it's a strong warning to fall into eternal judgment. Titus, Paul writes to Titus in chapter 1 verse 16, he says, There are those who profess to know God, and yet by their works they deny Him. It's a very sobering thing, Jesus. There's this scene in heaven where He says, there's a group of people that say, Jesus, Lord, Lord. And Jesus says to the group, I don't, I don't know who you are. These are the white water rapids. White? Did I say that right? Yeah. Level five. <laughs> but it is the word of God. We do our best to rightly divide what it, it means. And I pray then we will take heed to the warning and what God has for us. Amen? Father, thank you again for your word. Lord, we thank you that there are those who might land on a different interpretation. It's not a salvation issue. But Lord, it's, it's one of calling attention to the seriousness of our standing before you. And Lord, I do pray that none of us would fall into this category of having um, convinced ourselves or believe that we're saved simply because we show up or because we raised our hand at one point. But Lord, that we would examine ourselves, that we would work out our salvation with trembling and fear. Lord, that we would look at the fruit of our life and, and to know as we studied last week that if there's a true root of the Spirit, there'll be true fruit of the Spirit. And Father, if we are just simply here because it's entertaining or we're intellectually stimulated, Lord, I pray that those who are in that place would move beyond that and, and come fully to you. That it wouldn't be... a uh, a pseudo-save, but Lord, a genuine salvation to fully surrender to the lordship and kingship and the saviorship of Jesus Christ. And so to commit our time of study to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Pray for me for second service. <laughs>